This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the L2 Capital Podcast. I have the pleasure to talk today to Mark Nelson, an environmentalist and managing director at Radiant Energy Fund. Mark has been very vocal about the issues around nuclear energy and renewables, and we are going to talk about this today. So without further ado, Mark, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure Thanks. to talk to you here. Cheers, Marcelo. Good to be here. Great. Now, before we start, could you please tell our audience who you are, your background, and your role at Radiant Energy Fund? Sure. I studied engineering at university and switched to nuclear engineering for grad school because I was very excited by the difference between what seemed to be possible and where we were in the society. After leaving grad school, I was trying to understand how I, as a young person, could have a career in nuclear energy when, at least in my country, in the United States, reactors were closing or at risk of closing all the time. I ended up finding my way out to California and worked at Environmental Progress for a number of years with Michael Schellenberger. And it was there that I think I authentically transitioned into being an environmentalist. I think it's very hard sometimes for folks in the energy sector who work on low carbon energy to understand what it means to be an environmentalist because there's such a divide. But I think that my work at Environmental Progress and helping us understand the impacts on the environment of different energy choices led to me seeing that there was a gap in the nuclear industry in having an authentic environmentalist approach to understanding nuclear energy. So with uh, Michael Schellenberger's help and blessing, I spun off and created Radiant Energy Fund, where it's really an international advisory group where I help both industry and nonprofits understand the simple stories that are possible to tell if you're careful about your math and your and your engineering work. So jumping straight into it, um, the, the fashion thing to say now is ESG, Investments ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. And investors are flocking into companies that claim to be ESG. Obviously, uh, uh, who wouldn't want to invest in a company that protects the environment, right? But um, you mentioned to me in a previous conversation that uh, international and communication issues impact the definition of ESG. So could you please explain to us what you mean by that? Sure. So ESG is the big new rage. The idea is this. If a thing gets certified as good, according to whatever metrics are out there by the different ratings agencies, by the different international organizations, NGOs, governments, then an investor can be assured, so it goes, that their money is doing virtuous things in the world. And the idea is if you're investing in ways that are physically sustainable or environmentally sustainable or socially sustainable, then it means that it will be better for investors too in that they their investment uh, is longer lasting. I sort of made a, a, a fairy tale version of it because what ends up happening at the moment is tons of money is poured into to companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, maybe Microsoft, because the disembodied nature of those systems, it's software, means that you escape, so people think, physical implications of your investment. 
I mean, Marcelo, if you invest in a company that just is software and just bits, then how could you be having a bad impact on the environment, right? It's a great mm -hmm. idea. But what, of course, is the truth is that the world does not run on software. The world runs on electricity and the grid and energy. If you don't have electricity for data centers, you don't have any Facebook or Amazon or Google. So by trying to escape physical impacts, investors are stuck in a disembodied world of software for the moment, or they are entering into whichever energy sources have won an argument at the cultural level and the financial, uh, financial services level to be called sustainable. Mm -hmm. At the moment, there is no particular physical requirements, as far as I can tell, for the impact of an energy source other than low carbon. And even there, the definition of low carbon is very much up in the air. It, for example, some ESG metrics are, are going to include natural gas, maybe even slightly abated emissions through some sort of program to get some tiny percentage from biosources, regardless of the impact of the biosources. And most uh, ESG metrics will probably blanket approve any renewable energy project at all regardless of the emissions impact and environmental impact and wildlife impact. On the other hand, and I knew we would get to this considering your interest in audience, nuclear is effectively shadow banned from about just about every ESG metric I've seen out there in the world. What that means is nuclear is not explicitly banned often. Sometimes it's explicitly banned. Instead, it isn't banned, but it's not included. It's just not invested in. Got it. So that brings us to a critical moment in time for nuclear, for the environment, and for finance. Okay. Uh, so in, in how do you fight these communication issues? Because it seems to me that the whole press uh, have only praises to the so-called green energy, solar and wind, even though they are not reliable. And uh, moreover, uh, most environmental groups are, are, are pro the so-called green energy and against nuclear, which is strange if you ask me. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? In the end, the financial service companies that are writing up ESG are fundamentally responding to sort of public popularity contest, not actual physical metrics. To the extent that they make physical metrics, they're going to make physical metrics that keep the most number of clients and keep the most, uh, most of the, uh, shall we say, the loud and wealthy public happy. What that means is the public unpopularity of nuclear, especially among the older investing classes, shall we say, is a limit in using physical metrics for ESG at all. You know, there's a number of companies that, that play a little game. They say our products may be made in a grid that's 80% or 90% fossil fuels, but as long as the factory operating 24 hours a day claims to buy certificates enough to match its average energy consumption over the year from some facility that may or may not even physically connect, then it counts as clean. Because there's no public pressure here and almost no journalist interest at all in almost any mainstream publication about this, you know, vaguely fraudulent activity, it passes muster at the moment. Meanwhile, for nuclear, I mean, you, you say it's a little bit confusing, but let's be frank. If the public liked nuclear, then every financial services group in the world, except for ones tied to, say, maybe Germany, Austria, or some, a few other countries, would very rapidly find that actually, according to even the most rudimentary analysts' recommendations, the, the first glance at nuclear will reveal 
that it's ESG qualified. But because it's not publicly popular yet, there's no, shall we say, market signal to include this actually sustainable energy source as sustainable. Yeah, and when it comes to energy, people uh, get even flustered about things like oil, coal, but they are very eve uh, with natural gas. So is natural gas really ESG? It depends. Currently, a Green Party energy minister in Belgium is arguing to the nation how important it is to subsidize natural gas in order to phase out nuclear. Is natural gas ESG? Is the Green Party in favor of carbon emissions? In the case of the Green Party, yes, as long anything is possible, all social and environmental goals are to be deprecated to the, the major goal, the founding goal, really, of most Green Parties in the world of getting rid of nuclear. Now, we could have a separate con conversation about why that is, but the senior goal, the only truly indispensable goal for these, uh, at least green parties in Western Europe, is getting rid of nuclear energy. Every other environmental and social goal is below that. That's very interesting. And we are going to move to, to Europe shortly because that's a very interesting conversation to have. But So I will say, Marcelo, to, to just finish that answer, public polling has found that most, say, French people think that not only is nuclear high carbon and contributing to climate change, but they think that natural gas is not. Yeah. Plus the risks, right? Uh, the, the physical risks of natural gas. But um, we, we can go over that in, uh, in, in the next uh, conversation. But in terms of prices, I, I often hear people talking about solar and wind getting cheaper, even cheaper than nuclear. Uh, but I don't think they do the accounts properly. They use what's known as levelized cost of energy, which is uh, LCOE which is simply the, the average total cost of building and operating an asset uh, divided by the total electricity generated over the lifetime of this asset. And uh, this LCOE shows that the so-called renewables, solar and wind, are getting cheaper. So why people who live in regions where there are more solar and wind pay higher prices for their energy? Well, you've answered one of the most interesting questions in the energy discourse. And I'm going to start this answer, uh, Marcelo, by taking a bit of a risk and making a metaphor. If we were standing in Manhattan and we needed to get to London and we were examining, examining the cost to get to London and we looked at the price of different ways of getting to London and we broke it down per mile, we would find that swimming is cheapest. <laughs> Is it physically possible to get there with swimming? Well, no, but uh, per mile, per mile, if you started swimming, first of all, zero startup costs if you already know how to swim. You know the waterways clear the whole way. So really, um, it's it's fine to make a chart and show it to the world that says building, uh, buying a boat or buying a boat ticket costs this much per mile. Flying in an airplane costs this much. Plus, it's so expensive to set up airplanes and airports. The cheapest way to get from New York to London is swimming. And everyone can look at it and you can break it down even further you can say in terms of calories per unit you know and and you can find that maybe all right a fully loaded jumbo jet might be a, a few fewer calories per distance traveled than swimming but it'll be close and you could have this reasoned debate with the top experts and phd in in ocean crossing in the whole world and you could all agree that you're using the same metric the cost per mile of swimming and this people advocating swimming who definitely wouldn't swim themselves. No, God, no, right? But other people, they're recommending that other people swim because it's 
key. Got it. And the fact that you physically couldn't do it and you would die needn't enter the debate at all because you've gotten your units right, the dollars per, per mile um, traveled. Yeah. So with LCOE, LCOE, you have a physically meaningless number, as in the LCOE of renewables, the next marginal unit of renewables on a grid, tells you practically nothing about what it will cost for a user, either industrial or, con- or residential or commercial, to access grid energy into the future. You know almost nothing from the marginal price of adding the next unit of renewables. LCOE is a fairly good way to understand what a grid would be like if largely composed of sources like nuclear or natural gas, assuming you could understand what the fuel prices would do in the future. But it is physically uncomparable to wind and solar. Now, underlying this problem with LCOE, Marcelo, is the fact that electricity is the weirdest system in the world. And I want to justify that. It is talked about like it's a commodity system. It's bought and sold. uh, Electricity units are bought and sold as if they're a commodity. Economists almost revel in their complete misunderstanding of the physical nature, the physically embodied nature of the electricity system. Even the ones who who try to design markets to to direct capital in, you know, or not direct, but to to allow private capital owners to develop to direct their own capital, they don't understand it as a physical system. They use uh, sort of crutches all the time to try to think their way through the market. Marcelo, at the risk of even getting a little too deep, I saw the dumbest thing once. I was looking at uh, lecture notes from one of MIT's top professors in electricity. And this this fellow um, was saying, well, kids, you know, to all his students, you wouldn't want a tomato farm, a road manufacturer, a truck manufacturer, and a tomato processing plant all to be owned by the same company, would you? You would want those to be separate businesses. One business in roads, one business in trucking, one business in tomato growing, and another business in 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 uh, tomato processing. What this gets wrong is very interesting. It shows that even economists who have built their lives work around electricity have no understanding of the physical implications and the fact that our tomatoes, you know, electricity tomatoes, rot in milliseconds. In milliseconds, the tomatoes rot and they can take down the country along with them. In other words, electricity is not a commodity. It is a service that has some abstract commodity-like properties if you squint. LCOE, levelized cost of electricity, was a metric developed to describe power plant, the cost of energy from power plants of a given nature, is now used by wind and solar in a way to hide the fact that this that, that energy from wind and solar, although sold as a commodity, is not a commodity, and that the costs and performance of a grid, of an electricity grid, are dominated by the extremes, and that won't change. And what are the extremes? Extreme shortages of supply, extreme difficulties with combining the right generators at the right time with the right user load, right? Those are the types of extremes and extreme events within them will end up dominating the average cost of electricity delivered. The only reason we don't see this very much is because so far, the history of grids has been one of making electricity cheaper, consolidating our system around centralized generation, sharing that centralized generation across many users. That's given us the performance that we expect. We're in a world where, you know, inflation creeps up a little bit. 
where, you know, home costs and education costs and all sorts of human service costs have been spiraling upwards. We have been able to count on electricity coming in at much lower than inflation for decade after decade after decade. Now that we have LCOE numbers saying that wind and solar are cheap, all of a sudden in many parts of the the world, electricity, one of the foundational bedrocks of modern society, is starting to rush upwards in cost higher than inflation, even during a time of incredibly cheap fossil fuels. That should worry us all, and it should immediately tell us something is wrong with the use of LCOE in this manner to describe variable energy resources. Fantastic. Brilliant answer, Mark. Uh, and, and I love the swimming to, from uh, New York to London metaphor. I, I will appropriate it, if you will, if you let me and uh, start using it. <laughs> please, please spread it around. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, uh, changing, uh, well, now that you went from uh, New York to London, let's, let's move to Europe. Um, you have done a lot of work there and uh, you know their issues well. And most of the energy produced in France is clean and it comes from nuclear reactors. And today, actually, uh, French President Macron said with all the words that France's energy and ecological future depends on nuclear power. But this new French generation is not so pro-nuclear. Why is that, in your opinion? This is one of the most interesting cases in the world. Even as people around the world discover nuclear energy and then rapidly discover the story of France. And we and at this point, anybody with an interest in nuclear kind of knows the story, right, Marcelo? They sure. standardized their designs. They, you know, bought a, a license to use Westinghouse reactors and they made it their own. They built a bunch in a short period of time. They achieved remarkable carbon performance at a relatively low cost. And there you go. There's the story, right? Sure. That story misses that the French public is probably one of the more anti-nuclear publics in Europe, if not the world. So what the hell happened? <laughs> It's a very weird story, actually. And and our allies, my allies and colleagues in France have done a great job attempting to explain it to me. And then there have been some very interesting uh, histories written on on the on the different factors that have gone into the situation. It's basically this. The French nuclear project continued and worked so well after the total commitment put in by the state and by the society elites that it was practically impossible for even concerted eco-terrorist efforts to stop successes in French nuclear. So, for example, a man who's as responsible as any other human on earth for showing us that there's a brighter, a brighter future, um, Marcel Boiteau, He he was the he was the director of EDF during the the build out of these reactors. His home was bombed by by eco terrorists to stop the construction at Fessenheim, the first pair of standardized reactors. He survived terrorist bombings. Nothing could shake the confidence of the French elites in building out the French nuclear system. So what what happened? The bombing stopped, and the effort turned cultural. The schools. The colleges, the NGOs, almost everywhere in French society other than the elite offices of the state and EDF itself became anti-nuclear, along with much of the rest of Europe. Nothing could shake this incredible performance of the French system. Instead, entire generations had to grow up and start entering state service, EDF service, every space in society, right? And that's where the anti-nuclear activities eventually emerged. And you have an entire French public 
that they do, it's not that they fear nuclear quite they just don't like it and they're ready for so-called ecological energy almost every young student i've ever met french student from the elite universities has had the same sort of silly answer on oh well you know we used to use nuclear because we needed it but fortunately now we have ecological energy so we are transitioning you'll you'll hear that like it's a script like it was fed to them in bottles uh, you know and uh, fed to them. And and really, in a way, it was. Eventually, that takes over the big institutions. EDF is kind of anti-nuclear, Marcelo. They've just done a big contract to provide the Paris Olympics with 100% renewable power. It won't physically be true. It's essentially fraud. But if everyone else gets to get away with it, why not EDF, right? Right there in the Ile de France, the Paris Olympics are going to be almost completely nuclear powered if they can't strip away enough of their power plants in time. And it still doesn't matter. They're going to claim it's renewables. You know, it's not just that natural gas is considered clean. It's worse than that. Because the enrichment and refining and recycling of nuclear a fuel is done in France using that clean French electricity, the actual carbon impacts of French nuclear are a fraction even of other nuclear systems elsewhere in the world, meaning the actual carbon impact of building wind and solar instead of using French nuclear in France is extremely high. We're talking like a factor of 10 higher to do new, say, solar rather than existing French nuclear. Isn't that a hell of a thing? And yet, because almost everyone in France is, you know, vaguely or quite anti-nuclear, it doesn't matter. And in fact, this, this highlights something very important for us. Because nuclear is not considered good or moral, it is therefore considered dirty. And now what is dirtiness? Dirtiness is high carbon, right? Meanwhile, because gas isn't nuclear and there's not a very big history of using much gas in France, it's just not, it takes only a tiny bit of advertising from the gas industry with for biogas or renewable gas. You could put 1% in the grid and that's enough to completely make it carbon free or carbon neutral in the eyes of the public who don't like nuclear. Sure. Yeah. Total must be very happy with that. Exactly. They must. Um, the financial institutions kind of go along. And here's the here's another thing that's crazy. Total itself gets to make money buying the French public's nuclear electricity that they already paid for. They get to take at their own discretion nuclear electricity from EDF and retail it to support their own businesses. Fantastic business. <laughs> well, it, except here's this. This year, those contracts to buy EDF's nuclear power were deep out of the money because of the um, COVID crisis. Yes. So these companies sued in court to get out of it and they won because the thinking goes, the public is a bunch of saps. They did buy, the, the public paid for this nuclear and the public still owns the nuclear, but they don't have a right to make money off it if it prevents the fossil fuel companies from making money in French electricity. Therefore, the French, the, the fossil fuel companies should have a right to make money off the French public's electricity, but they shouldn't have to pay any losses if the contracts are out of the money. Isn't it a brilliant system? Unbelievable. Yeah, but because nuclear is unpopular, this inverse carbon tax, this reverse carbon tax, if you will, and I could expand on why it's a reverse carbon tax, is not only tolerated, it's practically uncommented upon 
by any environmental group, by any public interest body, by any by any um, business, really. It just goes without saying that the French public's valuable low-carbon electricity should be expropriated and given to fossil fuel competitors so they can make money off of it while selling their fossil fuel business lines. Yeah, unbelievable. It, it, it's a cultural war. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not a war on fundamentals. I actually, Mark, would like you to expand on this reverse carbon tax. Could you please explain to us uh, what you mean by that? Sure. So France already has low carbon electricity, but that's not stopped this energy transition thing, because as we've heard, if you don't like nuclear, it's therefore high carbon. You'll find this even in scholars in professors and anyone who is allowing themselves to forget that nuclear is actually very low carbon, especially in France, where they've internalized the fuel cycle and run it off their own nuclear electricity. So here's what I mean by reverse carbon tax. EDF has been required to provide to the French public to buy and to build for itself renewable, that is wind and solar, that's of course much higher carbon than its own nuclear, and sell it to the public. And it is required to pay out very high subsidies, averaging over, um, I think the current figures that I've seen is still historic, these historical contracts on the books, EDF is paying out $100 a megawatt hour approximately for wind and solar. It's insane. Uh, wind is a little bit less now. I should say solar has been up near that. They're paying out these prices, but the, they can't even collect enough electricity revenue to do that, even though there's a special charge. There's a special renewable energy charge put on the on the public to pay for low carbon electricity is so in other words, low carbon electricity is taxed. Low carbon nuclear electricity is taxed to pay for higher carbon wind and solar. While it raises, it's sharply raising the price of electricity. Few countries in Europe have seen their electricity costs go up so much recently as France now that it's trying to catch up in renewable energy. It's gone up much more than Germany. We used to say, oh, French electricity is 10 times cleaner and half the cost. I can't say this anymore, Marcelo, because they've added so much cost to French electricity, They are, which means if you add cost to French electricity, which is already decarbonized, you're sending a price signal to all industries, to all home builders, to everyone else, don't use the grid, you should use fossil fuels off the grid. And those fossil fuels off the grid, depending on which source, are not taxed as carbon. Uh, I know recently, um, the French government tried to pass a fossil fuel, uh, you know, a, a a liquid fuels tax, a, a transportation fuels tax, and it failed even though they've been taxing the carbon-free electricity. Now that there's a similar overlap, you can have an electric car, you can have a diesel car, right? Hmm. They've been taxing the carbon-free electricity to pay for no for higher carbon wind and solar instead of taxing the carbon fuels to encourage people to go to the grid. Isn't that a hell of a thing? Unbelievable. Listen, uh, uh, if, if we move to another European country, Germany, which you mentioned before, they are phasing out nuclear energy whilst investing in the so-called renewables, solar and wind. Obviously, they, are, they, they have been investing in coal too, but let, let's leave it aside for a moment. This whole energy plan in Germany and the rest of Europe Is it really about going green or do you think there's something else behind it? Yes, but going green means getting rid of nuclear and harmonizing with nature regardless of how destructive it is to nature. That's the important thing to do. The Energiewende was about tearing out nuclear. And here's something even more important. German public was strongly anti-nuclear way before Chernobyl. 
they were anti-nuclear before Three Mile Island. This is absolutely vital to understand. Sure. The anti-nuclear attitude interpreted the nuclear, the great nuclear accidents, not the other way around. The great nuclear accidents did not make anti-nuclear attitude. Got it. Look, I mean, Chernobyl, the accident in Chernobyl was not even severe enough to shut down Chernobyl. Do, do you think it came because of the Second World War and the Russians and, uh, and the Allies shoved down nuclear energy down their throats? Well, they certainly shoved hosting nuclear bombs down their throats. And even if the elites <laughs> of the country understood why that was and, and allowed or even encouraged a nuclear shield over their country, I think there was a perception among the public post-war in Germany, that they were being asked to take existential risks of nuclear war on themselves with very little they were getting back from it. In fact, the country itself was divided down the middle. I think the trauma of that and the way that nuclear war and nuclear energy is still even today not distinguishable in the minds of almost every anti-nuclear activist in the world. I mean, look, um, Marcelo, there was a prominent anti-nuclear economist recently was tweeting about those LCOE fig figures and people were wondering why he couldn't understand. And I've met the dude and he's he is afraid of nuclear war. There is no metric that can ever make nuclear look good to him, not on carbon, not on price for the world leading projects, not on the stability. And there is no metric that will ever matter to him. He is actually anxious all the time about nuclear war. And he's not going to see a difference. He's not even going to investigate whether wind and solar can provide for society. It is of no examination uh, interest to him. He's afraid of nuclear war. And that's that. Now, I think that one of the things that we've done poorly is that we haven't spoken to anti-nuclear activists where they're really sitting. They don't care what type of reactor is there. They don't care how much waste there is or isn't. That's all bullshit. All this stuff about having a deep waste repository, it was always a troll. It was always concern trolling. It was always bullshit. A deep waste repository doesn't make a single anti-nuclear activist go, oh, well, then in that case, nuclear energy is okay. There will not be a single one who decides that. Now, financial institutions may have told themselves, if they're not scared of nuclear, oh, well, we'll just wait until there's a deep waste repository, then we'll re-examine the sustainability of nuclear. That's, they'll re-examine it the day they think they're losing clients because their clients want nuclear. Got it. So now, Germany was anti-nuclear. They only tacked on the whole carbon thing at the end. You know, there's a big coal plant in the middle of Berlin that puts out about 100 kilograms per year of aerosolized arsenic and mercury compounds. Germans don't care. Of course, it's poisoning them. But they're, they, they, they formed their purity intuitions before the, the, da the data. The data doesn't really matter. It, there's nothing you can do to make nuclear safer to satisfy Germans. You have to win on a psychic level that has almost nothing to do with engineering at all. And it has to acknowledge that people have intense and driving existential fears of nuclear that they constantly confuse with climate change itself, mind you. And they just think that the end could come at any moment and you're never going to win on nuclear energy as being moral until you've addressed those people where they stand with fears. You may not win, but you've got to understand that anti-nuclear people do not give a damn what the individual characteristics are of any particular reactor. You know, I've never met a German, and I've talked to a bunch about nuclear. I've never met a German that realized that Chernobyl design reactors are still in happy operational in uh, continental Europe. You'd think they'd know that, right? If they cared about Chernobyl so much. I have never 
met a German who ever knew that Chernobyl kept operating. But you'd think that'd be the first priority if Chernobyl was why they were anti-nuclear, right? Sure, sure. It's not. It's that they are afraid of nuclear war and of other countries having nuclear power over them without themselves being able to use that power. And in the end, the only thing available to them was to strip out all the reactors in some vain attempt to make the world not a nuclear world. Fantastic. Now, uh, uh, Mark, we, we see nuclear energy growing in Asia whilst it's uh, stagnating or, or being reduced in the West, maybe with the exception of the UK and some Eastern European countries. Why is it easier to build nuclear reactors in China, for instance, than it is to build them in the US? Now, there's a lot of people, I've heard a lot of really racist things, let me be quite frank, in other people attempting to answer this um, who are not in the nuclear sector. In the nuclear sector, we say things like good cost of capital, strong leadership from above, you know, standardized designs, all that. But in, in general, a lot of Western countries have almost completely lost the ability to build big projects. In the end, that's about leadership. And I mean, sure, maybe a little bit of national leadership, but the physical leadership, the management at every level of big projects has become, let's just say there's not a lot of managers who can deliver big things is my impression of being an American. Got it. Got it. At Vogel, it's it's not really remarked upon because Vogel has been such a mess in many ways, but the, the, the AP-1000s being built at Vogel represent a major improvement over the last reactors to be built in the U.S. The last reactors to be built in the U.S. with incredibly effective plants like Palo Verde, those things took 11, 12, 13, 14 years. The last generation before Vogel almost bankrupted half the utilities in the country, Marcelo. Those reactors took 15 years sometimes. And now we're building Vogel in just under 10. Is that acceptable? No. Is it as good as China building reactors in six years and five years? No. Is it as good as Japan building 1,300 megawatt first-of-a-kind reactors, ABWR reactors in the 90s in 36 months? 48 months from first concrete to commercial operation, 36 months to grid connection and, and test runs. No. And in fact, Japan can't build reactors that fast anymore. Even in China, the ability to get new power plants started has come to a very slow pace. That's not to say we shouldn't be bullish about the future of nuclear, because in, in nothing is sustainable as nuclear, and nothing can do what nuclear can do. Instead, we should say that we shouldn't look any further than an inability to lead large numbers of people on industrial projects. That pretty much sums it up. Now, there's also been a pretty awful leadership drain across the nuclear industry for a few decades because, you know, the last generation of plants that went 11, 12, 13, 14 years in construction, the inflation rate during that period was regularly from 5% to, to 15% annual inflation. It was a lesson that was so brutal that the financial industry cut nuclear out of its sights almost permanently. Well, mm -hmm. until today, right? Until now, when it's starting to dip its little toe in with the start of new um, uranium-focused funds. Sure. What does this mean for us? Is it that China has cultural aspects, shall we say, or governmental aspects that we can never replicate? Of course not. We used to be able to build reactors in in three years for uh, inflation adjusted costs of a few hundred million dollars we just have to get the leadership ability the focus to do it again i think it's possible half of the electricity in the united states is now 
under entities that have promised zero carbon electricity by 2050, if they actually can stick to it, that's a signal strong enough to regain the leadership potential that we've lost in nuclear industry. I think there's a deep misunderstanding that renewables build leadership capacity or infrastructure capacity. They don't really. In fact, the whole selling point is that they're so decentralized and that the labor involved is so low wage and so low skill that you can get it done really fast, really, really fast, as long as you can find the land and you can you can get somebody else to pay the cost of integrating onto the grid. I think we have to understand that we too can build nuclear fast, but it takes veterancy and it takes veterans that started with a lot of talent in the first place. I think we can take the finest leaders that finally got Vogel back on track. We can build a new nuclear campaign around them, quite frankly, and that that's the sort of veterancy required to achieve what's been achieved in China. Got it. Mark, uh, this conversation is really interesting and informative, and I know you have a hard stop now. So once again, many thanks for coming to this program and talking to us. It was a great pleasure to talk to you again, and uh, let's, do it, uh, let's do it again soon. Marcelo, thanks for having me, and let's talk again soon too, yes. Thank you, Mark. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.